John chapter 5, we are in the midst here in John of a sevenfold proof of Christ's deity. What a tremendous thing it is to come to a passage like this, which is not a real famous passage in terms of one that you hear about or one that you may have had a series on. Lots of people will go to Matthew, for example, teach through the Sermon on the Mount. Just pull it out and teach on it. Go to Romans 8, pull it out and teach on it. Go to Psalm 23, pull it out and teach on it. Very rarely will people go to John 5 and pull it out and do a series on that. But I think it's worthy of detailed attention, of a slow look, if I could put it that way, because there's so much here about the deity of Christ. If you are one of those people who has ever gone through the struggle of wondering if Jesus is really God and does it matter and all of that, and if you're wondering where in the Bible Christ is revealed as God, this is one of the chapters you need to study and understand so you can get over that, if you're still in that place. To that end, we're taking our time. I love what G. Campbell Morgan said. He said, if Christ is only a man, then I am an idolater. If he is very God, then the man who denies it is a blasphemer. Mark that well. If you think you can be a Christian and not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, know this today. If you think that Christ is only a man, then you're a blasphemer. You're not a Christian. No man comes to the Father except by Christ who is God. Not just Christ whose name is Jesus, but Christ who is God. Morgan went on to say there can be no union between those who hold to his deity and those who deny it. And that is, in the final sense, the difference between the cults and real Christianity. So we're working our way through verses 17 down through 30 and looking at these seven different expressions of Christ's deity. Last time we talked about verse 17 where Jesus answered them and he says, My father has been working until now and I have been working. You remember that he had healed the lame man and they were upset about it. And as he's responding to them in terms of why, he said this great statement, and it's such a strange statement that we basically took one whole message to understand it. The response of the Jews to that in verse 18 was, it says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father. And this is the conclusion the Jews came to, that he was making himself to be equal with God. That flies so heavily in the face of everybody, every cult, every ism, schism, and sect that would say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Even his enemies knew that he was unmistakably claiming to be God. So we come to verse 19. And Jesus answered and he said to them, Most assuredly, now he's going to just expand on this idea that he really is God. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. So verse 17 expresses the deity of Jesus Christ in terms of His work. Verse 19 is an expression of the deity of Jesus Christ in terms of His will. It is this issue of his will that he connects directly to God as a sign 
of the fact that he is God, as an expression of the fact that he is God. And I have no intention of going any further than verse 19 today. Simply because there's these odd statements so rich and so important in John that what good does it do to gloss over them and still have the statement not really mean anything to you when you're all done because you skimmed across the top like a stone skipping across the water. In John 5:19, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself. Now, what does that mean to you? What is it that you think that means? The Son can do nothing of Himself. But what He sees the Father do, for whatever He does, the Son does in like manner. Now, to properly understand this, you have to weigh it in the light of what He has already said that indicates that He is God, and you have to remember, this is now a statement made in response to their complaint that he is making himself equal with God. So now he's just going to go on detail by detail to add to their anger concerning their complaint against him, but to also show them why they should turn their attitude and believe in him. The son can do nothing of himself. What does that mean? Let me say this. This is not a statement of limited ability. It is not a statement of limited ability. The son can do nothing of himself. I think you read that and you tend to think, well, he's just saying that he has to depend on the Father for everything that he does because as a human being, he doesn't have all that it takes to fulfill his ministry. And perhaps you are thinking of Philippians 2.7 where we read about the Incarnation. In fact, why don't you just turn there? We'll look at it together. We really do need to connect it with what he's saying here in the proper light. Philippians 2.7 And here is a great statement of the Incarnation, an entire study in itself. Paul, writing here, says, but he made himself of no reputation. That's the New King James. The New American Standard renders that he emptied himself. I think the NIV says he made himself nothing, which is to me tremendously misleading. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. Those two things together really sum up the idea of taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. This is a picture of Christ and a statement of Christ stepping off of his throne in glory, enjoying all the fullness of the prerogatives of God, and funneling himself down, as it were, into the body of a man, emptying himself in the terms of stepping out of glory, enjoying the glory of his throne and the unbridled, blazing, holy glory of heaven, to come down and experience life as a man. It's, it is down, 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 down into humanity. He emptied himself. That's the idea. Emptied himself of all the experience of the glory of heaven. As you read this, and you see that he became a man, you have to ask the question, is this saying that he was reduced to all the limitations of human nature? Was he reduced to the limitations of human nature? The answer to that is no. 
You see, instead of pointing to some imperfection in his person or his power, it really is a statement of humility, but it is not intended to make you think that he left his deity behind when he became man. So that if you take that and go back to John, to chapter 5, to verse 19, and you read, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. You don't want to get the idea that in emptying himself and becoming a man, he limited himself so much that every move he made, he had to depend solely upon the Father for it, because he didn't have the ability in himself. That idea would tend to make you think that he was less than God. But the reality is, is that rightly understood, the Son can do nothing of himself. This is not a statement of limitation at all. It is exactly the opposite when rightly understood. Sometimes when you connect one scripture with another, you find that all of your confusion goes away like the fog before the morning sun. And if you just hop down to John 5 to verse 30, you have some enlightenment there that helps. Jesus says in almost the same thing, but he adds a little bit. He says, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. You add that to son can do nothing of himself, you begin to realize we're not talking about a limitation caused by his humanity, but rather we're talking about a matter of the will. We're dealing solely with a matter of Jesus Christ's will. You could render it this way. The son can do nothing out of himself or nothing as proceeding or originating within himself from the man side of it or the human side of it. You could put it together this way and you could say Jesus is saying, I cannot act independently from my Father. That's the idea. That's the idea. See, there's other statements in the Bible that tend you to think that there's these limitations on God. For example, in James 1.13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot. Here's something God cannot. God cannot be tempted by evil. Something God cannot. That's not a limitation. That is actually a revelation of his holiness. Titus 1.2 says, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot. Here's another cannot about God. Cannot lie. That's not a limitation. That's a revelation. It's a revelation again of His holiness. See, God cannot violate His own attributes. He cannot focus on one of His attributes to the exclusion of all of His others so that He would violate His character. He can never allow His love to violate His holiness. He can never allow His long-suffering to violate His wrath. This kind of thing. So that God with all of His attributes remain consistent in all of His attributes at all times. God becomes a man in Jesus Christ. This issue, the Son can do nothing of Himself, is not a statement that expresses a limitation. It is a revelation of the will of Christ fused inseparably to the Father because the Son is God. As God, 
His will cannot be divorced from the Father because what we really have here is a statement of deity. Remember that. So it's an expression of deity. So as Jesus stands addressing the crowd, remember now, he's talking to human beings. He is saying, there is no will in me apart from the Father. Why have you done all this? Well, Father's working, I've been working. We talked about that. Now he says, and further, because there's no will in me apart from the Father. You look at me, you see what I do, you're seeing an expression of the Father's will. And I cannot live in any other way. So that everything I do is an expression of the Father's will. So that I cannot do otherwise in anything that I do than give you an expression of the will of God, the will of the Father. Absolutely one in their will. Now follow this. If Jesus Christ is God and He was to have His own will apart from the Father in any sense at all, then what you would have would be two absolute contradicting wills. You with me? And what that would give you then is two separate gods, one opposing the other. So that if we put it in even plainer language, we would be affirming there are two supreme beings. Two supreme beings. And the problem with two supreme beings is that is a flat contradiction of terms. It's not possible. Only one being can be a supreme being. God is one. Now, the way this all works out then is that what we're looking at here is the mystery of the Trinity. So that the Son is one person of the Trinity. And we've sung it so many times. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. One God in three persons. The mystery of the Godhead. But all one in unity, harmony of will, and all of that. So here we're staring at the Son of God. He is 100% man. Absolutely 100% man. Absolutely 100% God, so God the Son, and thus in the fullest harmony with the will of the Father. R.C.H. Lenski, that great Lutheran commentator, said once, he said, Jesus did not cease to be the Son of God when he became man. He did not drop his deity, which is an impossible thought. He remained what he was, and he added what he had not had, namely a human nature. Derived out of a woman, a human mother, he became the God-man. So here's the summary of where we've been so far. He can do nothing of himself as a man, independent from God, because he could not stop being God, though he became a man, because God must be all that he is at all times. So here's the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All of that is to say this, there is utterly no self-will in Jesus Christ is expressing himself to this crowd. Now, how different that is from man. You see, here is the God-man. He is incapable of expressing self-will. Incapable to have something come out of his humanity that would be in contradiction to his deity. But man is fully capable of expressing self-will, right? And so are the angels. 
So that in the Bible, you find that one of the greatest expressions of self-will comes from an angel. Did you know that? Turn in your Bible to Isaiah, to chapter 14. Isaiah 14, to verse 12. Here we have the fall of Lucifer who we know as Satan. And here is really one of the, perhaps one of the most extreme exertions of self-will in all of the Bible. And here in Isaiah fourteen twelve, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart... I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. That is something that the Son of God cannot do. Exert His own will against the Father, because He's one with the Father. But here is Satan, count it, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, five times he exerts his will against God. What is the result of this holy angel? Many theologians feel that Satan was perhaps even the lead angel. He had a ministry in heaven right at the top of all of the angels. What does it take to take him from the very top to the lowest pits of hell? It takes an exertion of his own will. Self-will in the face of God's. Independent will in the face of God's will. Five times, I will, I will, I will. And he is thrown out of heaven in the presence of God as he knew it forever. Self-will is pretty heavy. As we look at Jesus Christ in John chapter 5, he is saying to the men that are standing in front of him who were so utterly self-willed, there is no self-will in me whatsoever. What you have seen is an expression of God's holy will because every expression that comes from me is just that. It is a grand statement of deity and certainly in contrast to what man is all about. So there is no will in him apart from the Father's. And that leads me to another thought. There was no will in him that had to be broken. No will in him that had to be broken. Like men. You see, because our wills are bent, and we learned that Sunday, we learned how badly our wills are bent. Because our wills are bent by sin, God has to break us. So part of the Christian language becomes terms like brokenness, or what's the Lord been doing in your life? He's been breaking me. Well, to some people, that would sound horrible. Certainly to the uninitiated and the unconverted, that would sound like an awful thing. You serve a God that's breaking you? Gee, I'm going to stay as far away from Him as I can. Oh, but if you only understood that to be broken by God is to be freed from a bent, corrupt will, to be conformed into His glorious holy will, then you would understand that that's the truth that makes a man free. There was no will in Christ that had to be broken, but there is certainly a will in us that has to be broken. You look in the Bible, 
And you find man simply refusing to walk in the ways of God, independent will. You find young people refusing to listen to their parents, an exercise of self-will. You find man refusing to receive correction, an exercise of self-will. You find man rebelling against God, self-will. You find him walking in the counsels of his own evil heart, self-will. God describes man in different places in the Bible as hardening his neck, self-will. Hardening his heart, self-will. Going backward instead of forward, self-will. Simply refusing to listen to God, self-will. It's all over, it's everywhere. Here's Christ, no self-will within him. He stands in the Bible, looming in all of his glory as our example. And here's a man, so different. Let me take you through a few examples. I'm so struck by this idea of Christ so united with God's will and how far off we are from that. I want you to see the contrast. That's all I want to see in this study. The deity of Christ and the contrast of our will with his. Turn in your Bible to Exodus 32.7. Exodus 32.7 Here is an amazing scene. God has, with signs and wonders, led the children of Israel by a great gracious hand out of Egypt. And they're out there now separated unto Him in the desert and just beginning. And God wants to get them all going in the right direction so, so they can receive the fullness of His blessedness among them. So Moses goes up to the mountaintop to get the instructions from God and you'd think everybody would be fasting and praying at the bottom of the mountain just waiting to hear what's coming next from this God who's already been so good to them. So Moses is up on the mountain and all of a sudden, he's been there for a while, all of a sudden the Lord said to Moses, Moses, get down! Go! Go down the mountain! For your people... (laughs) Interesting. Now it's your people. (laughs) Your people... Notice, whom you brought out. I don't want anything to do anymore. I've had it. I don't want anything to do anymore with these people. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside. Notice, quickly. That is just so typical. God works. God blesses. Man experiences the blessedness. And then how quickly man forgets and turns away. He says, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, they have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And they have said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed, notice the phrase, it is a stiff-necked people. A stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and make of you a great nation. Moses, let's just start over here. I'm tired of these people. I'm going to get rid of all of them. And Moses, you have to hand it to Moses here. I don't know what's in his mind, whether he can't bear the thought of starting over. I mean, he's 
It's, it's all taken so long just to get to this point. You remember growing up in Egypt, being the possible heir to Pharaoh's throne, living all those years, 40 years in the desert, and then finally God getting him there and calling him by the burning bush and having to turn his own will and his own mind and heart. And finally he went down there and all the plagues, it's almost all I can't bear it, God. If you're talking about a replay of all this, don't please God, no. I, that could be a motivation to his passionate intercession here. On the other hand, he just may be feeling extra loving at the moment. But notice verse 11, Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out? I'm just a guy who was found by a bush one day. Come on now, don't put these people on me. Your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains? Lord, let's talk about this. This wouldn't work out right. And to consume them from the face of the earth. And Lord, turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Lord, now remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken. I will give to your descendants and they will inherit it forever. Lord, come on, remember, you've got a great plan here. So the Lord relented from the harm he would do to his people. Of course, you find that rather than killing all of them, he just kills the worst of them. And the worst of them are those that had exercised market the most independent self-will in the face of God's will. And so many of them died, as you know. Korah and all those that rebelled against him. Let me take you to another example of self-will in the Bible. Go to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. And here is Saul. He has been given explicit instructions to wipe out all of the Amalekites and he doesn't do it. He does what he wants instead. And so in 1 Samuel fifteen nineteen, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? I wonder if there is ever any good answer to that. What do you think? <laughs> Never. But isn't it amazing how many good answers we thought we've had along the way? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Something persuades us that our answer is good enough to disobey the voice of the Lord. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Supposed to kill all the animals, kill all the people. Instead, he leaves all the good animals alive and all that. Took it for himself. And Saul said to Samuel, Oh, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, look at that, but the people, it's not my fault. It's not, hey, no, I'm not disobedient here. I'm not self-willed. Isn't it true that self-will always points the finger at someone else? But the people... What about the people? Well, they took the plunder and the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things which it should have been utterly destroyed, just like you said, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel gets his 
finger back from pointing at the people. He turns it right back around towards Saul and he says, he says, let's get this right. Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you, not the people, you, forget about the people, you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. What is the fruit of your self-will? You have lost the privilege God has given you. What was the fruit of Satan's self-will? He lost the privilege God had given him. And the thing is, we all go through this. We're so unlike Jesus. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24. I'm taking the time to do this because you know what? We tend to think after a while that we're so much like Jesus. Right? Oh, got a few years under my belt. Got some teaching in my head, in my heart. Memorized some verses. Yeah, it's so good not to be the way I used to be. And as I see some of the brethren around here, yeah, I can remember when I was like them, yeah. But now, of course, oh yes, yeah, such a beautiful thing to be so Christ-like. We just think we're so holy. And, oh, I would never be an idolater. Absolute witchcraft. That's a cult, man. I would never get near that stuff. Oh, but stubbornness is the same thing. Just as bad, God says. You have any of that? Oh, different issue. Oh my, getting too close to home now. Rebellion. Ooh. Ooh. You have any of that? You see, Proverbs one twenty four really nails it. Because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel, and you would have none of my rebuke. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes, and when your terror comes like a storm, and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge. And they did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. God is saying there is consequence to self-will. But if you will listen to me, if you will line up with my will, then you can rest assured that you will be safe and I will protect you. You can be without fear of evil. So you see, that's the way it is with mankind. In contrast to this, Christ stands as our ultimate example of having God's will as the one overarching focus in life. First John two six says he who says he abides in him ought to walk just as he walked. 
So, coming back to the issue. Christ standing before the people. There is no will in Him apart from the Father. There was no will in Him that had to be broken like other men. I want to go further and say this. Let's now look at the human side of Christ for the sake of relating to Him. There was only here the will of a man entirely at the disposal of God. As you looked at Christ, what you saw, just making it real simple on a human level, what you saw was only the will of a man whose life was entirely at the disposal of God. Have you ever thought about what the first words are in the Bible that are recorded from Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought what they are? Ever thought about it, contemplated it? If you don't know what they are, think about Jesus' life. What do we know about his life? We know about when he was a little baby. Of course, he couldn't say anything then. What do we know after that? Nothing until when? In the temple, how many years old? Seven, eight, some say six, some say duh, some say how old? Twelve. In the temple, about the time of the bar mitzvah for a boy in that culture. And you come across the first statements of Jesus in the Bible. It then becomes, to me, in my opinion, critical of what that statement is. Here is a 12-year-old boy facing life as an adult. And what is it that he has to say? He says in Luke 2.49, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And that is the track that he ran on for the rest of his life. Let me ask you, young people. Is that the statement of your life? Is that the keynote of your life? As you look out into the future of your life as an adult, as you wonder what you're going to do with your life, could it be said of you that this is the passion of your life? I must be about my father's business? Or would you fall into verse 50 where it says in Luke 2.50, but they did not understand the statement that was spoken to them. What? I must be about my father's business? Now we know the context of that. They don't understand the fullness of their son as God, obviously. But they didn't understand Here is a life in front of them facing adulthood that is utterly at the disposal of God. Do you understand what's going on here in this message? We're looking at a life in John 5 that is utterly at the disposal of God. Do you understand what Jesus is saying to these men who are so self-willed in front of Him? You're looking at a life that is utterly at the disposal of God in contrast to yours, the men who are plotting to kill Him. And then, as an adult facing his public ministry, Jesus goes to John the Baptist. He's baptized in the River Jordan. He comes up out of the water. The confirmation of the power of God comes upon him. The testimony of God himself. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness as preparation for his adult public ministry. And there in the wilderness he is assaulted by the temptations of Satan. And in that time, he steadfastly refuses to act independently of God, even when he is in his most weakened state. And when does Satan often attack you the hardest? When you are physically the weakest, because your resistance is down. 
So at the end of 40 days of no food comes the hardest temptation. I believe he was tempted all the way through. At the end of the 40 days, when he's physically weakest, emotionally, all of that, comes the heaviest onslaught, assaults of Satan, and he steadfastly refuses to act independently of God. Why? Because he had no other will than the Father's. In John 4, 34, Jesus said, My food, we've studied it, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And this statement characterized every moment of his blessed, loving service on earth. Then you come, again, we're looking from the human side of his life. You come to the garden. And, and in coming to the garden on the night before his crucifixion, you're coming to a man who is facing the end of his life. You're coming to a man who knows he will soon be dead. It becomes critical in my mind to see what comes out of his lips. I've seen his first words recorded in the Bible as a 12-year-old. Now I've come to his, the end of his life and he knows he's going to die. He knows it's only hours away. It becomes critical to me what comes out of his mouth as a man facing death. And what we find him saying in the garden on the ground, in agony, facing the unfathomable horrors of the cross, is this, not my will, but yours be done. Father, my life, as it has been from the beginning, is now in the end entirely at your disposal. And so, who among us can say that? I don't think any of us. But oh, the blessed joy of striving toward that goal. Oh, the blessed joy of waking up to the reality of a life like that. Oh, the blessed joy of seeing virtue go out of Jesus. Remember when the woman touched the hem of his garment and he said, who touched me? And they said, oh, come on, what do you mean? All these people around here? And you're talking about who touched me? He said, listen, I know someone touched me. Virtue has gone out of me. Now, we'll never be God. We're not deity. We don't have that kind of virtue, but we have the virtue He places within us intending for it to go out of us. And what a thrill it is to wake up to the reality that a life lived utterly at the disposal of God becomes a life where virtue goes out of you. And you begin to get, get the picture here as you go along in the Christian life, and this becomes your goal. And you understand that this is the secret of a dynamic, powerful life. Paul the Apostle, Colossians 1.29, said, To this end I also labor, striving according to His working that works in me mightily. I strive according to His working that works in me mightily. You know what that is? That's a statement that says, I have no other will for my life than God's. That's my goal. Oh, yes, I know I'm human. I write Romans 7, I express my humanness, but I have no other goal than to strive according to that working within me, which is the movement of the Spirit of God to bring about the will of God in my life and through my life. So John 5, 19, Jesus stands facing a self-willed crowd, and he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, and that is because given who he is, he cannot do any other than be God with his will inseparably united to the will of God. And as a human being who is the God-man, here is a life utterly at the disposal of God.
It is both fascinating and instructive to see the deity of Christ and fascinating and instructive to contemplate him as the great example of our faith. And then just briefly back to John 5.19. We might as well finish the sentence. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son does in like manner. Whatever he does, let me ask you a question. How much is whatever he does? It's all. And how much is all? Whatever he does, the Son does in like manner. You realize this is a claim only God can make. It doesn't really get any clearer than this. They're mad. They want to kill him because he's claiming to be God. He only adds to it. You want to know what I do? Whatever God does. And how much is whatever? All. And how much is all? Everything. So what I do? I do everything God does. Well, who are you? Well, isn't it obvious? It's a great statement of his deity. And he says, in like manner. That is only to define it a little further. Not only does he do what the Father does, he does it as the Father does it. That means he does it perfectly. That means every movie make makes everything he does. Any life he touches, he touches perfectly. I don't know about you, but in the difficulties of life, I have had my bad moments where I wonder if he has touched me perfectly. But every life he touches and works in, he works perfectly. Every life he impacts with his power, it's perfect. To the perfect end of the perfect will of God, it's all moving that way. It's a touch of perfection. He moves in like manner. Everything God does, every life he touches, every plan he makes, it's done perfectly. And that's how Jesus works in your life. So I encourage you, if you doubt that, and if you're in a rotten place today, that his touch on your life is designed toward a perfect end, a wonderful end, you need to come back to that trust to him. I woke up last Thursday. I can tell you now because it's past as well as last Thursday's message. I woke up last Thursday, I think it was, in the most rotten mood I have been in, I think, in years. I mean, I hadn't gotten much sleep, and, and I woke up, and I was tired, and I was supposed to go run, and I didn't want to run, and I didn't want to get up, and I didn't want to face a Thursday, which are often some of the most demonically active days of my life and I was sensitive to all of that more than usual so I mean I was in a rotten mood bad mood door slamming mood and finally after slamming a door not at my house because I would wake the family it was an early hour but in my office I thought well that's cool why don't you turn on your radio show now that you slam the door you know (laughs) listen to your holy self I was in a bad mood And I was really doubting that the will of God was so good and really doubting that Jesus does as the Father does and in what He does, He does in like manner as the Father. So it's perfect in my life. His influence is perfect. It's right on target. The power is leading to this wonderful goal of perfection and everything working together for the good. So I finally, I just stopped. And I said, God, I just admit 
I'm in a lousy mood, which you're already aware of, but I got to get it out. I'm in a horrible mood. I'm doubting you. I doubt prayer. I doubt it all. I doubt all the prayers of all the years because I still feel so desperately human and desperately wicked. And a door slam of all things is a wicked thing at an hour like this when my radio show is on. So here I am. Forgive me, God. I'm wretched. I'm right in the middle of Romans 7. And I hate all this. And I'm mad. And you know I'm mad, I'm shouting, and this is a shout prayer, and it's not Pentecostal. I'm just in the flesh. (laughs) We listen to know we are not alone. (laughs) I said, God, you know, how about a little encouragement here? You know, one of those surprise type things. Why don't you just get me out of this? You know, Lord, I do have to teach tonight, and would like to have a day filled with your spirit and full of your will and all of this. God help me, just do a miracle and change my whole attitude. Why don't you answer a couple of prayers? I said, here's a prayer, you know, since I'm feeling like you don't answer prayer. Why don't you answer this one? I just, this is not a 10-year thing. This is a prayer. I said, why don't you answer one of those? I call them arrow prayers. Just spontaneous prayer from the heart. And I said, how about that? And, you know, here's another one. Why don't you answer this one? God, before the end of the day, had answered both of them, as well as a few more, as well as many other things that I was uptight about. And by the end of the day, I was so blessed, such a docile creature, and (laughs) so happy before the Lord, that I knew that whatever he does, the son does in like manner, and Jesus has come to do a good thing in my life. And I just thank God for his will and his way and his timing, and that what the Father does, he does. And I had a day of experiencing the divinity of God in Christ. And that's a testimony I have fresh from my life to bring to you. I've been thinking about it for a week now of how much God did to meet me in my low point. And I'm certain that, you know, the devil, he loves to get you when you're even moving that way and shove you all the way down into it. I believe God came and rescued me out of that and strengthened me. And, and I made one little effort to strive according to his working within me. And he came back with a testimony, filled up my cups, splashed me all over, and just blessed me above and beyond what I could ever imagine. This is the God we serve. This is the Jesus we serve. He works in your life according to the perfection of God in every way, and you can trust Him for that. And so we see this great passage, so full of truth. I'm reminded of what Martin Luther put so well. He said, I have had so many experiences of Christ's divinity that I must say, there either is no God or He is God. And I have found in my life that there is a God, and His name is Jesus Christ. And His will is perfect. And He lived on this life, the life of a man, a human being, in a way that was unselfish, absolutely void of self-will. And He lived it at the utter disposal of the will of God the Father, And one of the reasons he did it was to be an example to me of the Christian life and what it's all about. I read in 
Hebrews 2.10 where it says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. The word there, author, in the old King James is captain. It's the Greek word archegos. And it was used of a man who would start or head a family into which others were born. It was used of a man who would found a city into which others would come to live. The word was used of a pioneer who would blaze a trail for others to follow. And the archegos would never stand at the rear and bark orders, but went out front and led, led by example. And I look at the text in front of us and I say, what is the example he sets before us in John 5:19? And I find the answer is this, a life totally at the disposal of the will of God. And I am encouraged when I realize that 2 Corinthians 3:18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And I am so encouraged to realize that as I long for that life utterly at the disposal of God's will, that is what the Holy Spirit is working me toward deep within me. And I can seek to strive according to His working deep within me, expecting that He's intending to do above and beyond all I could ask or pray or think, and go on to know the joy of a life submitted to the will of God. It's the only way to live. Let's bow and thank God for His goodness. Father, we love You so much. We thank you for all of the fullness of the expression of your love in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you came to this earth and lived among us as a man living a life utterly at the disposal of the will of God the Father and that you have come to lead us by your Spirit into the joys of that life. And so, Lord, we pray, draw us that we might truly run after you. And that you as our great king might bring us into those great inner chambers of your glory and your love. And that we might know the intimacy and the power of a life that's lived in the will of God. And Lord, may it be the great theme of our life to be about the Father's business. And as you mold us and shape us day by day, showing yourself strong on our behalf by your Spirit we will truly give you all the glory for you are worthy of it all. And we do ask these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.